0: The Wicked Library is brought to you by Sanitary Magazine. Sanitary Magazine showcases original horror fiction and dark verse alongside news, reviews, and interviews. Now weekly as of June 1st. SanitaryMagazine.com Also brought to you by Shadows at the Door. Shadows at the Door is an ever-growing collection of haunted stories inspired by the ghastly, the ghoulish, and the macabre. You can enjoy the pleasing terrors and similar content at ShadowsAtTheDoor.com also brought to you by Rickert and Beagle Books. Rickert and Beagle Books is a new, used, and rare bookstore located in Dormont, PA, specializing in science fiction, fantasy, horror, and weird nonfiction. Visit them on the web at rickertandbeaglebooks.com. Warning
1: yeah. The Wicked Library. Can- contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your library. There's nothing to be afraid of. Yet. Hold on to yourselves, boys and rules. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. Well, no talking. It's story time. At the Wicked Library. <laughs>
0: whack curse. The trailer park had never been good to David Neal. When he turned 18 years old, he enlisted in the United States Army with the only priority being to get as far out of town as possible. He signed on for the standard agreement of four years, and after completing basic training, he was sent off to Afghanistan, where he saw his fair share of both boredom and fighting. When he was granted leave, he used that time to just go on vacations to the Florida coast and suck down as many Budweiser's as he possibly could. He never bothered going home. He was an only child to a drug-addicted mother who never gave him much attention, except when she would occasionally forget a birthday and try to convince him that she really did care about him. And an absentee father, who he knew only as Dennis, that he may or may not have seen once at a gas station while on a cigarette run for his mother when he was 10 years old. So David never really saw any point in going home to that when he could use the money he made to live it up for a week or two on the Florida beaches. But when David's four years were up and it was time to go home, he wasn't really exactly sure what to do. He knew he didn't want to re-up with the military, and his bank account only had enough money in it for about two weeks in Miami. So, David went home. The army paid for his flight, and as expected, there was no one there to meet him at the airport to take him home. So he took a taxi to the closest Holiday Inn and checked in for the night. He still had his mother's home phone number programmed into his list of contacts, and after five failed attempts to reach her, he tried the Trailer Park rental office. The man on the other end of the phone told him that his mother had been dead for two years of a heart attack. David wasn't surprised. He was uncertain of his future now, though. Not that he really ever knew what he was going to do from there, but he had counted on being able to figure that out on his mother's couch. But now, that was not an option. He left his room and went downstairs to the hotel bar. It was busier than David anticipated but he just assumed hotel bars next to the airport were probably like that. His faded blue jeans, fatigue boots, white t-shirt, and high and tight crew cut were all dead giveaways that he was fresh out of the military. A few ex-servicemen recognized the look right away and sent him a few beers. An hour passed before he was approached by one of the men. He was about twice David's age, wore an old green fatigues jacket, and had a kind face. His hair was blonde and combed neatly to the side with a razor-sharp part. "'Where'd you serve?' the man asked. "'Afghanistan, mostly,' David answered. "'Where you heading now, home?' the man asked. "'Eh, not real sure. Florida, maybe. Might see if I can get a job down there somewhere. Fishing, maybe,' David said." "'Were you on your way there now, or on your way back in?' the man asked. "'Back in, sir.' "'Well, what are you doing in a place like this?' the man asked. And then he saw the expression on David's face drop, and he knew David had nowhere to go. "'Well, I'll tell you what. Don't answer that. I've seen my fair share of wars and battles,' I hate to see one of my own go on too long without a little bit of walking around money David took another swig of his beer and asked the man what he was getting at what I'm getting at is I have a bet for you the man said a bet? what kind of bet? David asked I bet you that you can't go seven years without a bath the man said what are you talking about? David said And then the entire hotel bar seemed to stop in time. The song in the jukebox had faded off into the ether as if someone had quickly pulled the power cord out of the wall. Then everything in David's peripheral vision had gone black. Soon after, the blackness enveloped everything he saw behind the man like spilled black ink until there was nothing but the man and blackness. David suddenly felt ill, nauseous, nervous, lightheaded. Flight, not fight, was calling him, but his brain couldn't communicate to anything other than itself that it was in dire need to get away. I bet you your soul that you cannot go seven years without bathing, shaving, trimming your nails, cutting your hair, or praying. In those seven years, I'll provide you with as much money as you want or need. Just reach into your pockets, and it'll be there. What if you die in those seven years? Your soul soul belongs to me, the man said. What are you? David asked. And instantly the room grew so cold that it made David's body convulse in revolt. You know exactly who and what I am, the man said. And what if I play by your rules and live through the seven years, David said. Then you can keep the power. You'll be rich beyond your wildest dreams. Everlasting money right out of your pockets, the man said. But there's one more catch you must wear this elk skin as your jacket, and everyone will know you as elk skin. skin. All of the children will be afraid of you, and no one will care for you. But should you live, you can keep the power of producing as much money as your heart desires just by reaching into your pockets and pulling it out handfuls upon handfuls of money all for you David all for you David what do you say David thought about it for a moment he considered his future or lack thereof and said you're on as he stuck out his hand the man grabbed it shook it and the pact was made instantly the blackness faded and David found himself sitting on the bar stool, shaking his hand in the air with no one in front of him at all. For the last goddamn time, if you don't get your crazy ass out of here, I'm calling the cops, the bartender said to David. David turned to look at him to see what he was talking about. And in doing so, he caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror past the bottles behind the bar. He was wearing the elkskin coat, its head rested on top of his own. The antlers were so big, they didn't even fit in the full scope of the mirror. "'You crazy asshole. Talking to yourself and shit. Get the hell out of here, now!' the bartender screamed. The shock of it all scared David, and he jumped up from the stool and ran out of the bar into the hotel lobby, causing a commotion. He ran through the front door, and the elk's antlers banged against the doorframe as he ran out of the hotel.' has caused him to fall into the mud and mulch in front of the hotel next to the sidewalk. When he got to his feet, David looked at the mud in his hands and how the violent fall had caused it to get under his fingernails. His first thought was to go back up to his room and wash his hands. But just as immediately, he remembered the agreement. He grunted in frustration, wiped his hand on the thighs of his jeans. When he tried to get back into the hotel, the bartender and hotel manager met him at the front door to stop him. He protested about his belongings in his room. All my shit's in there, man, he said, and reached into his pocket to pull out the key card as proof of being a guest, but instead produced a wad of crunched-up $1 bills and loose change that fell to the ground between the three men. Get fucking lost, okay, buddy? Beat it, the manager said to David. And he did. He got lost for months. He wandered the outskirts of the city with no place to go. Hotels wouldn't accept him as a guest due to his appearance, no matter how much money he offered them. Anytime he tried to buy a house, he would always end up with the bank workers freaking out at the elk skin jacket and the security guards forcing David out before he could even show them the money. Eventually, David resorted to his military training and made the most of it by living in the wild. He'd show up randomly in town for supplies when he needed them and did become known as Elkskin, just as the man had foretold. The townsfolk assumed he was crazy, and they weren't entirely wrong. But he was always exceptionally polite to them and overly kind to everyone he encountered. Everyone knew that he lived back in the woods somewhere but no one knew exactly where but the police figured he wasn't harming anyone so they never bothered to give him a hard time on the rare occasion that a conversation with the townie got extensive enough David did tell him that he was previously in the military so everyone just naturally assumed his nature and abundance of money to be attributed to post-traumatic stress disorder and a sizable military pension David, of course, knew the truth, and just insisted that they pray for him, as he gave them large sums of money for themselves and the church. After four years of living in the woods, he had become repulsive. The townspeople went out of their way to avoid him when he came around, so his trips into town had become less and less frequent, and so did his use for money. He hated his very existence. And the deal he had cursed himself with. He wanted to die, but knew his fate if he did. He roamed the woods, cursing himself, taking great care in doing so to be extra loud, so he would always scare off any wildlife that could pose a threat. In one such instance, he screamed until his throat was so sore he could no longer scream at all. He walked through the woods in perfect camouflage and near perfect silence sulking until he saw a red pickup truck parked along a fire road. He saw a man inside and politely waved. The old man saw David exit the woods and walk directly in front of his path, and he instantly recognized David as Elkskin and waved back. As David approached the truck, he could see the worry on the man's face, so he took extra care to walk very easy toward the truck and to be extra nice in his manner. He got next to the driver's side door as the old man inside rolled down the window. "'Hi there, neighbor,' David said. "'What brings you this far out?' Then David looked down into the man's lap and saw a pistol. He looked back up at the old man and saw tears in his eyes and knew he had interrupted the man's suicide. "'Oh, brother, no, this is not the answer.' The old man sucked the dripping snot back into his nose and forced the lump that sat in his throat down before he spoke. I lost it all. Everything. I can't pay the bills. I got three girls at home that need me to provide for them. And I can't. The bank's taking the house back in a month. We got nowhere to go. I got no job. I got no money. David interrupted the rambling. Your concerns are real, but your salvation is equally as existent. Please, put the gun down on the floor. The old man swallowed hard again, but put the gun on the floorboard in front of the passenger seat. Now, how much would it take to keep your home and put your debtors to rest? I don't I don't know. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, I don't know. It might be a million for all it matters, the old man said. David reached into his pocket and pulled out a wad of $10,000 and handed it to the man. Holy shit, where did you get all of that? David pulled out a second wad, then a third. That's $30,000 you have there in your hands. There's more if you want it, he said. The old man began to sob. I'll never be able to repay you. Just pray for me, David replied. But the old man insisted that David come to his house for dinner. He used some of the money David had given him and sent his daughters out to the grocery store to buy the fanciest food they could. And while they were gone, he promised David that he would marry one of his daughters off to him, as a sincere thank you and David accepted that night after dinner the old man told his daughters of his intentions to repay David and they all protested the very notion of Elkskin being at their house was enough to make them already hate their father but having him make one of them marry the man was just too much the man demanded that they be grateful for the blessing and for the good fortune the man they knew as Elkskin had brought to their family but the oldest daughter refused and ran off to her room. The middle daughter sat at the table in even deeper disgust than she had throughout dinner, saying she'd rather marry a real elk than be made to marry that abomination. The youngest daughter saw the pain in her father's face at the behavior of his other two daughters and painfully agreed to fulfill her father's promise to marry David. When she agreed, David pulled out his dog tags from under his elk skin. "'and handed one of them to her. "'In three years I'll return, "'and then we shall be married,' he said. "'Then he thanked the old man for everything and left. "'Over the next three years, "'the two oldest daughters made fun of the youngest and her betrothed. "'Occasionally one of the older daughters would say "'that they saw Elkskin in the town doing something vile and disgusting, "'then tease the youngest daughter about their engagement.' The youngest daughter would cry, hoping that over the three years that Elkskin would forget about the arrangement, or better yet, just die. But he didn't. On the last day of the seven-year wager, David woke up in the woods to the sound of clapping and found the blonde-haired man sitting on a tree stump in front of him wearing the exact same outfit he had at the hotel bar on the night the deal was forged. "'Well, a deal's a deal,' he said to David. "'And I demand you keep your end of the deal,' David said. "'And I will,' the man said. And with a snap of his fingers, the two were suddenly transported to a luxurious suite. David looked around the room and could hardly believe that the nightmare was coming to an end. The man ushered David into the bathroom where he pulled off the elk skin and sat David in a warm bath and began to bathe and shave him. The water felt so good that David didn't even object to whatever discomfort he felt at another man washing him. Afterward, David began to towel himself off, and the man came back into the bathroom and presented David with a designer suit. Black. It's my favorite color. I hope you don't mind, the man said. So what happens when I die? David asked. That's no longer for me to decide the man said fair enough and I get to keep the powers David asked yes just as we agreed the man answered if you don't believe me see for yourself the man slid the jacket on over David's shoulders and David reached into the inner jacket pocket and pulled out $500 very well David said so will there be anything else then the man asked yeah Say the Lord's Prayer with me, David replied. The man smirked at David and said, Don't push your luck, before disappearing into a cloud of black smoke that looked like an exploding shadow and left the room smelling like sulfur. But on the floor where the man had just been standing, there was a key with a Mercedes logo on it and a note attached that read, Keep her clean. David walked out of the suite and found an elevator just down the hall. He took it to the ground floor and found the Mercedes just beside the main door and a handicapped parking spot with a handicapped tag hanging from the rearview mirror. He took a look around and realized to where he was and drove to the liquor store. He bought a case of wine and drove to the home of the old man and his three daughters. When he arrived, the oldest daughter answered the door. She was so taken aback by his good looks that she barely flinched when he walked right in without being invited. The old man got up from his recliner and demanded to know what was going on. David said, "'Sir, it is no secret that you have the most beautiful daughters in town, and I am here to make one of them my wife.' Without hesitation, the two oldest daughters ran upstairs to fix their hair, change their clothes, and put on as much makeup and perfume that they felt necessary to persuade the dashing man to choose one of them. The youngest daughter, however, sat in the corner of the living room couch, dressed all in black, and her face lit up by the blue-filtered light of a laptop. She had the palest of white skin, and her hair dyed so black it looked purple, and enough eye makeup on that she looked like a raccoon. What about you? "'Aren't you going to change?' David asked her. "'Who, her? You don't want nothing to do with her. "'She's engaged to Elkskin,' the oldest daughter said, "'coming down the steps, regaining her balance from stumbling in her high heels. "'Very well, then. Let's discuss this over dinner,' David said. "'I need to see what my future wife can cook like.' "'And immediately, the two oldest daughters went to work in the kitchen. "'I'll pour everyone a glass of wine to celebrate.' "'That means you too, little Miss Scareall. "'Come on, Harper, come to the table,' the old man insisted to his youngest daughter. "'Reluctantly, she pulled the screen to her laptop down "'and joined her father and David at the kitchen table, "'while the two older sisters slaved away at the microwave, stove, oven, and kitchen counter. "'Cans were being opened, vegetables were being washed, then chopped, "'onions were thrown into a saucepan to simmer, "'and fat was being cut away from hunks of chicken.' As the oldest sisters worked, the three at the table drank glass after glass of red wine until they were all loosening up and having fun watching the two sisters slave away. Harper was mostly quiet, allowing the majority of the conversation to be between her father and David until something metallic flapped against her nose as she tried to gulp down the bottom of her glass. She swallowed what she had in her mouth, then she looked down to see David's other dog tag at the bottom of her glass. She couldn't believe it. Every day for the last three years, she had looked at its mate that he had given her. Every day she looked at it and used it as a reminder of how much she loved her father. She had memorized David's last name, first name, social security number, blood type, and religion. She knew that the one at the bottom of her glass was an exact match, and that the man in front of her wasn't a stranger at all nor was it Elkskin. skin he was really named david neal and he this beautiful well-dressed man was here for her holy shit she said what is it the old man asked she pulled out the dog tag and dropped it on the table not a person in the house didn't know what it was Because for the last three years, it was a glue that held together every quip and joke that was made about the engagement that Harper had made with the dirty vagrant known as Elkskin. The two oldest daughters broke down on the kitchen floor saying things like, Please Elkskin, please take me! And reasons why he should forgive them. Even going as far as to make up lies about Harper, saying she was a slut and had... About nine abortions. Their father couldn't believe the things that were coming out of his two oldest daughters' mouths. Too many times had they disappointed him that way. And that was the final straw. And he told them that they were no longer welcome in his home. He reminded them about how David had saved his life and paid off the debts and liens on the property. And of their actions three years prior. And reminded them how they had constantly made the man who made their lives possible the butt of their jokes. He looked at his two oldest daughters and said, I will not abide another insult hurled at this man's direction. And now you see what all of your smart mouth ways got you. Both of you are ungrateful little women who know nothing of pain and struggles, both of which might do you some good. I want you both out, now! After hearing the words of their father and realizing... What she had given up three years ago, the oldest daughter took a steak knife from off the kitchen counter, and in a fit of rage, she slashed her throat completely open as she ripped the serrated blade across the soft skin of her neck. The old man screamed and fell to his knees. He crawled across the floor to the bleeding out body of his oldest daughter and picked her up into his arms and tried to stop the blood from spilling out of her by cupping his hands over the massive wound. The middle daughter screamed in anger and disgust. She felt her entire world fall apart. And in that instant, she ran out of the front door and directly into the oncoming traffic of the road outside the house. David watched as a speeding snowplow passed the house and struck the middle daughter, killing her instantly as her body was nearly ripped in two by the metal plow. Harper stood in the middle of the kitchen in shock as the entire scene played out. She didn't know what to do with herself. A moment ago, she was engorged with satisfaction at the twist of fate that had been dealt. And then, an instant later... She was in the confusion of her sister's deaths and her father's utter misery. She went to her father's aid to try to comfort him and get him up off the floor. David looked out into the open door to see the scene on the road in front of the house. Call 911 already, Harper said. David took the house phone off the wall and called. He gave the operator the street address of the house and the breakdown of what happened. Within five minutes, police and paramedics arrived. The police took Harper outside to a squad car for her official statement. Her father stayed on the floor crying as the paramedics came in with a stretcher and body bag after the medical examiner pronounced the oldest daughter dead at the scene. David sat at the kitchen table in complete disbelief. He imagined that night for three years and now it would unfold. And in every instance, it had never ended that way. All he could do was watch as the paramedics loaded the oldest sister into the thick plastic bag. Boy, this was a real mess, wasn't it? One of the paramedics said to David. Excuse me, David said. A real mess here. Gonna be a real bitch to get clean. Might take, like... Seven years,' the paramedic said. "'David's attention rocketed in the direction of the voice "'and saw the familiar blonde hair coming out from under one of the man's hats. "'And in that instant, the blonde-haired man sipped up the body bag "'and turned to face David. "'He instantly recognized his face but couldn't find any words. "'The blonde-haired man stood up with his partner "'and they began to carry the body bag out of the house. "'He locked eyes with David as they walked.' and kept staring at him the entire time until he got close enough to David to lean over and whisper in his ear. Well, hey, I got two souls
1: for the price of one.
0: Today's episode featured a story by Jesse J. Saxon, The Blackest Curse. If you'd like more information on Jesse J. Saxon and his work, please visit jessejsaxon.com and follow him on Twitter at WBSurvival. That stands for White Belt Survival, because Jesse is a martial artist and can kick your ass. Artwork for today's show was created by Jeanette Andromeda, you can see more of Jeanette's work at HorrorMade.com and interact with her on Twitter at HauntingTV. Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Big thanks to Max Booth III for a great story last week and to Barney Bodoano for the incredible artwork. Don't forget to visit our sponsors, ShadowsAtTheDoor.com, SanitariumMagazine.com, and, of course, com. Please share the terror. Share the show. Help us grow. The best support you can give is to give us a rating in iTunes, or Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio, or wherever you listen. Ratings are free, and they mean a lot to us. Just a few days away, this Friday, July 17th, the wait is over. Sign up now and get our monthly newsletter with a bonus story from Caitlin Marceau. You're also going to get a new Victoria and the Librarian cartoon and a very special prize. You're also going to find out before anybody else which story by Neil Gaiman we're going to be reading in August. So sign up for the newsletter at thewickedlibrary.com. And now, Jesse J. Saxon. So today we have Jesse J. Saxon, and his story today was The Blackest Curse. And Jesse, this is obviously a retelling of an older type of tale. This is a a bearskin tale, right?
2: Correct. Yeah, it was originally in the big book of Brothers Grimm fairy tales. And in doing some research for horror, you know, you kind of come across the classic tales, and you find this inspiration and draw from that a little bit. while doing that, you know, I also came across a request for a newer take on some classic tales, and I decided to give it a shot with that modern tale that, that became The Blackest Curse. Ultimately, uh, somebody beat me to the punch when they submitted uh, retelling uh, before I did. So the, uh, the Blackest Curse didn't make it into that anthology, but I did get a nice letter back from the editor that said, boy, I wish you would have sent this one day before. Yeah. However, I already committed
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was a great story. It's, it's obviously got a, a different feel to it than the traditional modern horror because it's based upon an older fable folklore type of tale, which is, I thought, kind of the appeal because, you know, when we do the Wicked Library, I want to try to do things that are a little different and, and you know, a different type of story than, than the last one that we did or the one that we're going to do next week or what have you.
2: Yeah, and I think that's always been kind of an ongoing theme with the Wicked Library, that you try to bring not necessarily unknown authors, because there are a variety of well-known authors that come on. Mm-hmm. Um, you try to have a diverse group from different takes. I mean, horror can wrap its arms around so many different subgenres. You know, like you said, sometimes you reach back into older tales. I think uh, during the, either the first or second season, there was a, an old Japanese tale that was kind of in uh, public domain, and it was fantastic. And then, you know, you get some newer stuff, you know, like kind of how you had, I think, see um, Brian Brown on recently. Mm-hmm. And he has great stuff and kind of goes in completely different directions than a lot of the other authors. And then mixing in the tale you heard today, it's, it's an older tale with a newer spin. So yeah, the Wicked Library always has some sort of new spin and a new flavor and, and, and a new story for everybody every week. And, uh, you know, it's obviously become one of my favorite podcasts.
0: Excellent. Well, you've become one of my favorite writers, so that's ah, uh, it's, a, it's a mutual admiration there then. It's a beautiful relationship. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> You're obviously pretty involved in martial arts. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you, does that play into – the way that you write in any way, does it help make you more disciplined or more focused or, or, or are they just two completely different pursuits?
2: No, uh, they cross paths frequently. Um, one of my favorite quotes comes from a very famous samurai named Mayamoto Musashi. And he wrote a couple of books, but his most famous is called the book of five Rings. My favorite quote comes from that book saying, once you understand the way broadly, You see it in all things, meaning specifically, he was talking about how sword fighting can be used in all aspects of life, not necessarily just defense or, you know, cooking in your kitchen, but more like, you know, when you know how to work with people and how to anticipate movements and actions and how people may act towards you in a life or death situation, you're kind of able to run that through pretty much any way that you encounter life. And I, I think I kind of adapt that a little bit with the martial arts that I practice. That's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. but you're confronted with the reality of getting choked <laughs> weekly right. and having to admit defeat. I think all writers can understand having to admit defeat whenever it comes to getting denial letters, yeah. rejections. but also, you know, to, to the writing part of it, um, you're so in touch with the way that the human body reacts in, those sort of situations. And it's kind of weird to hear when you talk about it that way, because I mean, I'm not necessarily in a life or death situation, but my brain and my body don't know that my brain and my body really, I think that this is a fight to the death. Right. And I'm using all of my muscles at once and my body's trying not to die. Yeah. And when I either come out of a spar with, a sense of I didn't die, and those endorphins are released, and and then you have the the other side of that story of oh my gosh I didn't die, yeah, and you know the 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 other side to that story. So whenever I'm writing and and you know my protagonist or the antagonist is having some sort of feeling, you know having experienced maybe like the diet form or you know the light beer form of a life or death struggle, it, it helps a lot that way.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I imagine it would. It's nice when you have something like that that you can incorporate into the story and kind of feel what the character is feeling and, and put yourself in their shoes.
2: Yeah, well, and, and I always take my cues from Stephen King. You know, I I, I that Stephen King kind of rips off himself in a lot of ways. Like, the one that always sticks out to me is when he wrote The Shining. You know, I don't think he went to the, the Stanley Hotel for inspiration, the Shining came out of his experience there. So, I mean, he's really kind of doing a cover version of himself, you know, kind of juiced up. And as he, talks, he talks about that stuff a little bit in his uh, Stephen King on Writing book. Right. about like The majority of his stories come from a personal experience. And, you know, we, I think he said that he got the inspiration from Carrie as he was working as a janitor cleaning out of high school and it was the first time he was ever in a girl's bathroom and they had... Uh, the the garbage can in, in the stall and he couldn't understand why and his mentor had to tell him it was for female products.
1: Uh-huh. and he
2: had to he put himself in that position like, oh my God, can you imagine being a you know pubescent teen and like this thing having to happen at school. Yeah. So, you know, he kind of like steals from himself a little bit. So i'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but I try to take a nod from him and Use personal experiences that I've had and and kind of juice them up a little bit, right? You know, through the martial arts that I said, you know, the experiences that I've had that way to convey emotion, but also with the experiences that I've had in life, kind of growing up in a not so uh, affluent area. You know, it's not that I grew up dirt poor, but I didn't grow up in a city. I didn't grow up in the suburbs and. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you kind of reach that uh, that a little bit here in, in Blackest Curse. Whenever I bring it up about the trailer parks and mm-hmm. kind of how it's, it's never been good to the to uh, the characters and how you know there's no real reason to stay there. And you, you draw from those personal experiences and the emotions that you had, and, it, and try to hope that it comes out in the story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And doing a little bit of martial arts myself years ago, one of the things that I took away from it. Because I never really got very good at the actual defense and physicality part of it was just the ability to focus and tune out other things around you because that becomes very important in martial arts that you're focused on the person in front of you looking them in the eyes, not worried about all the other distractions around you.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely something that martial arts does help you with. I mean, honestly, I I started it late in life, in my late twenties, and
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know whether you want to call that late in life or not. But I think most people that truly love and embrace martial arts really kind of get it from an early age. Yeah, and um, I, I didn't come into it that way, but I I think that was sort of a blessing in disguise because I had all of those life experiences before and coming into uh martial arts later in life kind of humbled you a little bit and and I'm always grateful for that. But to your point though that it does have to teach you your mind to focus on the task at hand and not necessarily the distractions. And that definitely helps for me at least, it definitely helps with writing because look man we've all looked at that flashing cursor and Microsoft <laughs> Word in the dark at three o'clock in the morning tossing yourself out and thinking, should I take another nod from Stephen King and, like, drink the rest of this stick and see what <laughs> is on the right. paper in the morning? Yeah. Or, you know, do I focus and try to get it done and just type and then we'll edit later? Right. So, yeah, it definitely helps in that way, too.
0: Yeah, that's and that's actually one of the other questions that I had for you is, like, I, I personally, I don't believe in writer's block because you can write – regardless of whether it's any good or not, you're still going to be able to write. But I think we've all kind of experienced that part of getting stuck where like everything's going fine. You're flowing. You hit a point in the story and you're like, why is this not coming out? What happens for you whenever you get to that point?
2: I do a couple of different tricks. One of the tricks that I like to do is write a sequel to the story. If I'm kind of, stuck at an area that I don't know where I want the character to go, I'll write a sequel to the story either based off of the events that I'm typing about or that character or, you know, really whatever comes to mind at that, you know, because I think everybody sort of has, it's just connecting point A to point C with point B, that's the problem. So as long as you kind of have that idea of how you want the story to end, one of my tricks, like I said, I just write the sequel to it. You know, maybe it's a thousand words that Dan, Jesse, and Bill all live happily ever after in the Candyland Kingdom. (laughs) But maybe in doing that, I reveal dirty secrets about Jesse that he's actually a murderer, and he wants the Candyland Kingdom to himself. And as I write that, Uh, I go, I know how Jesse gets out of this jam, because he's actually a murderer. and Nobody knew that. So he kills everybody. Also, one of the things I um, I like to do is I listen to music whenever I type, and I try to oh, yeah. I try to set the score for it. You know, like uh, if this was going to be a movie, who writes the soundtrack? Who's on the Who's on the the, the album for the movie? And once uh, I hit a, a stage of writer's block. I do another one. I, I do, I take out the playlist. I put in something new. Sometimes I'll just make it a whole album to try to convey the mood and see if that helps and Sometimes it's a combination of it, but my favorite advice came to me from my late professor, uh, Dr. Ron Forsyth. And it does steal the page from, uh, from Stephen King's book. He, uh, he actually got me into horror
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, <clears throat> whenever I was in college and, I couldn't come up with the extra 2,000 words to meet the assignment. So I was, of course, a legal drinking age. and he hands me $20, and he sends me to the liquor store, and he said, take this, go buy a bottle of whiskey, drink a quarter of it, and start to type. Drink another quarter of it and go to bed. Wake up tomorrow and read what you wrote and take out what doesn't make sense. And sure enough, sure enough, I mean, you know how it is. When you get a couple of drinks in you, you start talking. Right. And... Kind of the same comes out when you're writing. You get a couple of drinks in you, you start writing. The thoughts start to come a little bit. Now I'm not going to go ahead and advocate getting hammered to to, to work it out. But hey, sometimes you heard it here first, folks, too. on Wicked
0: Library. Jesse Saxon's method of writing: get yourself hammered.
2: Hey, hey sometimes you got to throw something on the wall and see what sticks. I, no, I, I agree I, with you. But you know, don't throw things against the wall when you're getting hammered because then the neighbors call. Not that I would know, but I just heard a story. <laughs> once
0: yeah some other guy named jesse that uh, looks a little bit like you but not the same guy
2: yeah he didn't have a beard
0: that's right <laughs> <laughs> well what draws you to horror i know you said that um you know it was in college and your professor that that first yeah. opened the door to you what keeps you coming back to it
2: oh man um podcasts like this to be honest you know um the you come across anthologies every once in a while where everything in the anthology is fantastic but truth be told if you got a 20-story anthology, four of them aren't going to work for you. Not that it's a bad story. It's just the gears don't meet with your gears, and it doesn't work. Right. So, like, these podcasts where you get exposed to, like I said, well-known authors with a story you may not know or not-so-well-known authors giving out these new stories, and it's, it's easy. You know, it's on the go. You pop in your earbuds in your phone or however – whatever listening device that you use. Mm-hmm. And it's horror on demand. You know, it's fantastic. Um, horror movies every once in a while work for me. Not not so much anymore. It's not that I think horror movies are bad now. I still think horror movies are the same. I just think that people grow up and don't really find them as scary as they used to when they were little. But right. horror movies once in a while work for me. But uh, my biggest draw to stay in horror is honestly day-to-day life um i don't want to say whenever i watch the news i get inspired but man like sometimes you you (laughs) you look at your neighbor across the street and you think jeffrey dahmer was somebody's neighbor for a long time (laughs) and they were pulling cadavers out of his house in in deep freezes yeah and 50 gallon drums and he was somebody's neighbor and they didn't know So it's things like that whenever I'm left to my own devices and, you know, on rainy afternoons in the Pittsburgh suburbs, whenever I look out the window and I go, I wonder what the guy across the street's really doing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like, well, what's really going on? Why does he really have to run every morning at 445 a couple of miles? Like, why does he need to stay in that much shape? Yeah. Is it Is it because he chases down joggers and he hides them in bushes where he collects them the next morning you know <laughs> my my mind starts to wander, and I am a habitual podcast listener to see if anybody else has like these sorts of you know like lines of thought or if it branches out that way and all and whenever I hear fun stories, I go, oh man, I wonder if he or she the writer had a traffic experience like I did. And they thought, saw something leaking out of the trunk and thought, what if that's something in there decaying?
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, that goes back to on writing too, which, you know, when, when Stephen King talks about at nighttime, you know, the, the weird things that go through your mind and what you wonder about what's in the closet or might be under the bed because you've taught your imagination to misbehave. And once you teach your imagination to misbehave, it misbehaves all the time.
2: Yeah, um, there's a lot of scientific research that I won't quote the uh, scripture and verse on, but um, a lot of research that lends credibility to the notion that um, fears and um, things to that effect are passed down uh, genetically Mm -hmm. through a hereditary line. And there was a, a study done with mice where... Uh, A group of mice were in a cage where the floor was electrified. Mm -hmm. And just before they would electrify the cage, they would spray in a uh, citrusy mist. So every time that the rats started to smell the citrus, they got super panicky because they knew the electricity was coming. Right. And sure enough, I think all the way down through three generations that whenever they would spray the citrus mist, they wouldn't even have to do the electric shock the great-grandchildren of those original mics would get real
0: freaked out. That's fascinating.
2: Yeah, so it kind of makes you wonder why every little kid goes, there's monsters in the closet or monsters in the bed. Well, what were the monsters 20,000 years ago? Well, that was lions, pumas, yeah. leopards were monsters that came at you in the night. Right. So there's some some scientific wonder of maybe that's why we're so scared of monsters at night is because, well thousands and thousands of years ago. That's when the monsters came and took
0: kids. Right. In the middle of it the is. night. Maybe from they the were dark. real monsters. R- right.
2: Yeah, maybe they were real monsters, too. Well,
0: I'm I sure there so. are. Yeah, exactly. It would be more interesting, not. right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Would, <laughs> believe me, Anytime I see the news that there's a, that a Bigfoot sighting,
0: I'm on it. That's I <laughs> want it to be real right. so bad. That's fantastic. Well, tell me, where can folks find more of your writing and find out more about you and interact with you?
2: Uh, I, am very active on Twitter. Uh, I'll, I'll give the caveat though, that it is very centered around
0: the uh, Brazilian
2: jiu-jitsu side of things. And, uh, I, I tap or I tiptoe into uh, MMA a little bit on there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and that's at WB survival and that's, uh, related to the blog that I write for, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and that's, uh, white belt survival strategy www.blogspot.com. Blog, and if you're ever interested in that sort of stuff, you can go there. But really, the uh, the meat and potatoes of uh, horror fiction, you can get me at my website at uh, jessejsaxton.com.
0: The White Belt Survival Guide, I think, is, is very interesting, and uh, you have some really good writing in there. If anybody's into martial arts, even if it's not Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I think that you have some some really interesting and uh, helpful information for folks in there
2: well thank you and the goal of it wasn't that i don't teach technique and uh i don't i don't teach anything like moves or anything that way i really kind of just try to reach out to people that are new into uh, martial arts like you said specifically jujitsu but to teach uh kind of give a big brother approach to things of these are things that you can do attitude wise and outlook wise and Mm -hmm um you know i teach people how to how to buy the uniform the kimono the gi teach you what to look for how to use sizing charts things like that it's more informational on like i said the big brother side of things that aren't necessarily communicated to you right uh in the rule book of your dojo or your school or your gym or wherever it is you're taking a martial arts it's just like a a, a good way to get good information without having to ask embarrassing questions.
0: Right, right. No, I like that a lot. What are some of the uh, the other projects that you have coming up? Is there anything writing-wise that you're working on that uh, horror fans might be interested in?
2: Uh, right now, I, I'm getting back into some short stories. I, I, I don't want to tip the cards too much, but I will <laughs> <Right>. say that... <laughs> yeah, I will say that I, I do have a couple of uh, uh, kettles going or some pots on the stove or uh, a couple of stories coming out. Um, you know, I'm always looking to get some new stuff out there, but um, I not-so-secretly wrote a zombie novel Oh yeah, about five years ago. And um, so I'm currently still doing the uh, revisions on that, but not to count the chickens before the eggs are hatched. Uh, a friend of mine did a screenplay for it, and he's saying that we're getting some pretty good interest. So uh, maybe by... I don't know twenty thirty five. My uh, my my zombie novel that may never get published may find its way onto uh, sci fi late night with a sci fi movie or something. But
0: uh, excellent. Yeah, I
2: wrote a I wrote a wrote a zombie novel uh, based in Pittsburgh because that's where zombies live.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But um, everybody that that has uh, has touched it has loved it.
1: Excellent. But
2: um, I haven't gotten it in the hands of a. Publisher yet who has loved it as much as anyone else. Yeah. but you know who, who who hasn't had that struggle.
0: Well, that's okay. There's a few of them I know that listen to the show, so maybe you'll get some inquiries.
2: I, you know, I'm 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 open. Like I said, there's a little bit of movie talk. Yeah, and I and, and I'm always for sale. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so for the right price. We all are. No, I, I, I mean, it, honest to goodness, man. It's just like any other. Uh, success story, I mean, honest to goodness, man, that story wrote itself. I mean, I was just the the receiver uh-huh. that was the conduit that wrote that story. I mean, it, it wasn't always in my head. I had an idea, and man, it just, every day, I was putting out 10, 15, 20 pages, six hours a day, I mean, the, if not more. But yeah, that story really did write itself. So if it, if it ever did catch fire like it should, you know, I'm sure there are a lot more deserving things out there, and I'm more than willing to take my turn. But if it ever hits and somebody asks me that same question, man, I'm going to say it. But listen, that thing wrote itself. It was, I was just the one that, that, that
0: did the work. Yeah. Yeah. I've had that experience before, too. All right, man. Well, I know you're running because you got a bunch of stuff going on, but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, and I definitely appreciate you letting us read one of your stories on the Wicked Library.
2: Ah, not a problem, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, too. You're welcome. Not a problem, man.
0: The Blackest Curse by Jesse J. Saxon. Copyright Jesse J. Saxon. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foyzek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was Amber Collins. The Wicked Library theme was performed by Anthony Rosick of Novus. All other music in this episode was performed by Steve Montgomery of Dark Mood Music or Kevin McLeod of incompetech.com and used with their permission. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Wicked Library is a Hicksun Fabulous production. HicksonFabulous.com. Producer Daniel Foytek. Executive producer, Nelson W. Piles. Full show notes and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 606. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead, leave the lights on.
1: Music, talk, talk, talk. Uh, stories. Uh, 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 politics. Uh, this is the Society 13 Podcast Network. Head a Whistle Radio. Uh, Music, the Wiki Library, stories. Mouthing uh, off. Uh Frogwash. politics with Mr. Pink talk the ninth story. Music, Red Horse Radio, politics, Society Thirteen. Where bad? Uh, I can't say that. Where? Where? Uh, Where? Where naughty donkeys listen to podcasts? Society Thirteen. Where naughty donkeys?